Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm going to be your solo host for this episode. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Lee couldn't make it along to this one. Uh, we, I, I tried really hard. I really wanted her to watch this one. Um, given, you know, Bergman seems like such a daunting task, but then given her reaction to Fanny and Alexander, how much she enjoyed that, I was like, you know what? Let's dive into some interesting stuff with this one. Uh, but unfortunately, we couldn't make it happen. And um, you'll also notice I need I also need to apologize uh, for this episode being a couple of weeks late. I know at the last one I promised it would be on time, but uh, unfortunately, I got sick in the uh, horrible uh, cold and flu and COVID season we're having here in Melbourne. And then uh, right off the heels of that, uh, Lee and her husband Josh got sick. And on top of all of that as well, um, I've just been absolutely flat out with work um, watching films, uh, which does kind of sound like a weird thing to be complaining about. It's not a complaint. Uh, I do love it, but it is uh, kind of hard to find then the time to kind of sit down and rewatch um, The Virgin Spring and kind of schedule, not out the time to be able to sit and record this. So I apologize for that. Um, but as uh, any film buff knows, it is a... Uh, been a really fun couple of two weeks happening over in uh, the south of France. So, uh, more on that, uh, I guess, as we as the year unfolds, I'll kind of chat about some of that, I guess. But uh, in the meantime, I'll uh, talk about some stuff that I can talk about that I've seen recently. Um, so, with upcoming, I think, here in Australia in like a couple of weeks' time from when I'm recording this... Uh, the new Nicole Holofcener film, um, You Hurt My Feelings, is coming out. And I was only really familiar with uh, her last film, um, Enough Said. That was kind of, I think, really the only one of hers I'd seen before. Um, so recently, over the last couple of weeks, I decided to dive in and um, pretty much watch every one of her films, um, starting with 1996's Walking and Talking, and then uh, moving through to Lovely and Amazing, which is probably her most well-known, I would say, from 2001. And then Friends with Money in 2006. So, yeah, I've just kind of been on a real Nicole Holofcener kick. Um, my big takeaway is, uh, why isn't Catherine Keener the lead of every single film ever? Um, she's fucking incredible, and I love her. Uh, and kind of getting to watch her again in some of these older films, I just absolutely loved it. Um, the kind of just... It, the the style and vibe of her films, um, it's just such... I mean, I don't want to evoke another filmmaker to kind of use as a simile, but I suppose kind of like... When her stuff is really popping, it reminds me of kind of like Woody Allen films when they're really working and when they're really kind of popping for you. You can be like... Both the performances, the snappy dialogue, the location, the setting, the themes, everything that is going into this film is kind of just working in a beautiful harmony. And to me, uh, Nicole Holofcener has that when her films are kind of on that wavelength. Uh, I mean, that being said, like not everything in all the films works for me, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed them. And it was a kind of bit of a diminishing returns as I went along where I still think enough said is probably her best film of the ones that I've seen. Uh, but prior to that, uh, on this rewatch, I, I think I liked Walking and Talking most out of all of them. And then Lovely and Amazing and Friends with Money kind of, you know, going in that descending order as I, as I got further into her career. But uh, if, if you've never seen any of them, I highly recommend. They're just nice, low-key, 
dramedies with, you know, often a kind of twinge of romanticism in there as well. Um, amazing performances, like I said, Catherine Keener, um, Anne Haitian, Walking and Talking, as well as uh, Academy Award nominated director Todd Field uh, back when he was an actor, before he kind of gave that up to be behind the camera way back when. It's kind of, it's right around the same time he was in Twister as uh, one of the crew members on Twister. Side note, it's so fucking weird that, like, you look at Twister again and you're like, wow, part of that crew, you've got Todd Field, you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, I mean, it's one of those films where you look at all the background actors and, you know, the supporting actors, and you're like, man, this is a stacked cast cast here. I, well done. Jan de Bont pulling out the big names before, you know, calling his shot. But uh, otherwise, the main things I've been kind of rewatching on top of the Nicola Hall Center is, um, listeners probably know I've brought it up a couple of times, but I'm a big fan of the uh, podcast series Blank Check. Uh, and at the moment, they are currently doing a retrospective. Their current series is on um, the films of Buster Keaton. And they're kind of lumping them together. So each week is uh, they're going to look at two of Buster's films uh, before he moved over to, I believe it was Columbia or United Artists before he kind of got swept up in the studio system. It's his, they're looking at, you know, I think 12 of his kind of classic independently run ones that were his productions he directed. And um, so I've been waking up on a Sunday morning, sitting down with my coffee and breakfast and watching two Buster Keaton movies on YouTube because they're all public domain. So you can all find them on there. And it's been a fucking blast. Um, I was always a bigger fan of Buster Keaton than I was Chaplin. And so kind of getting this or, or Harold Lloyd, I should say, as well, or, you know, a bunch of those silent era comedians. Keaton was always kind of my favorite out of all of them. And watching all of his films again, or, you know, this kind of stint and this run of films, it's really kind of encapsulated for me why I like him so much, um, in that he he's never high status. He's always playing the underdog, and that kind of droopy dog face of his, that kind of sad, never smiling, just very down on his luck, oh shucks attitude, is so great, and it works so well for the comedy and unlike, you know, we all know and love The Tramp, like Chaplin, you know, does fantastic and did amazing things. But The Tramp is always trying to pull one over on on someone. He's always trying to be the better. He's trying to always, he enters a scene high status, even if he is, you know, a tramp. And his aim is to disrupt that and leave as high status. He, he's never kind of, he's always trying to fuck with people. Whereas Buster Keaton never seemed to be that kind of person who would... He's never trying to pull one over on anyone. He's always kind of, yeah, maintaining that kind of low status. He's never trying to pull one over on anyone. There's nothing malicious about the weird and wacky hijinks that he gets in. It's always kind of by happenstance and by fun. Like, you know, you look at our, our hospitality, like when he's, you know, getting <laughs> chased down and hunted for his life just because of an old, you know, old rivalry and feud between, you know, his ancestors. That's nothing to do with him. He just come, kind of wanders into the situation, is kind of haplessly oblivious to it and kind of stumbles around. It's just lovely stuff and wholesome, and they hold up like crazy. Um, his direction, I, I yeah, camera work, not to mention, of course, the stunts. I mean, good God, absolutely amazing. Um, so I cannot recommend, if you're looking for some nice, easy entertainment, dive into some Buster Keaton and listen to Blank Check as well. They're doing great work kind of dissecting them over there. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like I said, I've just been watching 
films upon films upon films that I can't really talk about at this point. Um, so I'm going to leave them and instead, uh, thankfully, uh, I'm on my own here, so it's going to be nice and quick, but it's also a lot of business for me to get done at the top here before we dive into this week's film, uh, which is going to be The Virgin Spring, which is spine number 321, which means it is time for a look back. Uh, so the last 10, uh, best and a worst. So... In that 10, we have Sword of the Beast, Samurai Spy, Kill, Pickpocket, Shoot the Piano Player, Ran, The Tales of Hoffman, Forbidden Games, The Bad Sleep Well, and Young Mr. Lincoln. Um, this is a no-brainer. It's it's Ran. <laughs> it's, it's easily Ran. Um, I love that film. I think it's uh, not my favorite Kurosawa, but I think it is kind of a pinnacle and masterwork from him. Um... But honorable mentions, of course, to I was very pleasantly surprised and had a great time with uh, Forbidden Games, uh, the René Clément film. I thought that was absolutely fantastic, as well as, you know, Pickpocket. With my mixed feelings on Brisson, I thought it was nice to kind of visit that one, and I liked it well enough. It wasn't, you know, didn't do everything for me, but yeah, it, it's... It's solid. So out of all of those, Ran and Forbidden Games are my uh, my picks for the best. And Tales of Hoffman, unfortunately. Um, the Archers, Pal and Pressburger, they couldn't do it for me. Um, out of all the films, that one was the biggest struggle. And I think it is just purely because I'm a Philistine in terms of uh, opera and kind of diving into that world and kind of just being presented a filmed opera production. And I just didn't, didn't vibe with it. Uh... Pretty stuff in there, but just not not on my wavelength. Uh, so on that note, how about we dive into this week's film, uh, which is Ingmar Bergman's 1960 Academy Award winning film, The Virgin Spring. Winner of the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring is a harrowing tale of faith, revenge, and savagery in medieval Sweden. With austere simplicity, the director tells the story of the rape and murder of the virgin Karen and her father Tor's ruthless pursuit of vengeance against the three killers. Starring Max von Sydow and photographed by the brilliant Sven Nykvist, the film is both beautiful and cruel in its depiction of a world teetering between paganism and Christianity. All right. Um, God, where do you start with a film like this? I mean... Over the last couple of years, I've actually noticed, I mean, it might just be me and kind of, you know, the places I look around online and kind of circles I run in, but I feel this one has kind of become more and more kind of considered a benchmark or a pinnacle Bergman film. Like, you always hear about, you know, obviously Seventh Seal and then some of the later ones, like Cries and Whispers and things, uh, Fanny and Alexander coming through, but Virgin Spring, I feel in the last couple of years at least it's really gotten a big kick and people kind of really look to this one and consider it like one of the pinnacles and uh, kind of great achievements of his career. Um, so where the fuck do you start with tackling it? Um, I guess it's uh, the best thing to do is sort of, uh, as George Michael said, uh, you got to have faith. All right, that's enough of that stupidity. <laughs> we'll get that out of the way. Um, but yeah, essentially, this is a film that is all about faith. Baby. And by it all being about faith, it really boils down to, essentially, it's, it's the battle between an old faith and a new faith. 
um, at the time that this film was set, uh, Christianity is this new and emerging faith and kind of a religious structure that's coming up. And it's kind of working to replace and build um, build over top of the old pagan religion that used to be there, obviously like worshipping Odin and things. Um, and Bergman works really well to uh, kind of really pinpoint these two in the portrayals of the two young women, uh, Karen, uh, who is uh, Tor's, uh, the main daughter, and then um, Ingeri, who is the kind of their adopted daughter. Um, Karen is really doted on by her loving parents. Uh, she's their only child, and she's the first of this brand new generation to be raised entirely in this new Christian faith. And because of this, her parents adore her uh, almost like they kind of love her so much, not just as the fact that she's their only daughter, but they're using it her as almost this vessel of their piousness and their love for uh, this new church, um, as well as each other and a family. Um, Peter Cowie actually writes uh, this really nice little thing uh, in the essay that comes along with the Criterion edition where he says, uh, Karen is, quote, the bright new hope of both the family and their faith. And it's perfectly spot on. Just the way that Sven Nyquist's um, cinematography really just highlights this kind of innocence and this kind of virtue around this young woman. She's always got this kind of glowing aura about her. as, And that really just does kind of hammer home the point of this is how she's viewed by her parents. And uh, it's not just them loving their daughter, but it is this personification of this new faith for them. Um and it, like I said, he contrasts this magnificently uh, with Ingeri. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, the adopted daughter. Uh, she's always covered in dirt and she's given no real respect or appreciation from the parents. Um, she's she's dressed in a simple kind of throwaway, almost like a Hessian sack for a lot of the movie. And you kind of contrast this, like even just the way that they look, like I said, that aura that's around Karen and Gary being in this kind of grimy, dirty sack dress, whereas uh, there's even a scene where Karen uh, gets on her gorgeous silk dress, which her mother says this was specifically made by 15 maidens. Um, it, it's really funny. And then there's also the lax attitude um, uh, that they also throw towards Karen, like... And Gary comes in and they're just like, where have you been? What are you doing? Why are you, why aren't your chores done? Whereas Karen is allowed to, you know, sleep in, kind of, you know, be a little bit more lax with her responsibilities. And like the main part, like the key reason for this is because Ingeri is still a pagan. She's still, she is not part of that new faith. And so she's kind of not allowed the kind of virtuous kind of, or not virtuous, I guess, but this kind of more loving kind of appreciative attitude because she hasn't embraced that new faith yet. She hasn't crossed over into the new world and this new religion. Uh, she still worships Odin. <laughs> uh, again, uh, working to kind of be that yin to the yang that is Karen. Um, she's representing uh, for Tor and his wife that old world, uh, the one that they're kind of leaving behind for a better Christian one. Um, or so they think, at least. Well, uh, as the film kind of unravels, so does their kind of faith in God and Christianity to some degree. Not entirely. Um... And also, like, both of the performances by Ingeri and Karen are absolutely fucking stunning. I'm just pulling up their names quickly because obviously want to give uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, Ingeri is uh, Gunnar Lindblom and Karen is uh, Brigitta Peterson. Um, again, these two performances, they 
perfectly embody the yin and yang of this kind of old world, dirty, grimy, peasanty kind of pagan style versus this new virtuous kind of honey golden glow that is always around Karen. Uh, even in the scene that inevitably has her untimely downfall and things, she is still lit with this almost kind of golden hue behind her, and which makes the, the rape and death even more kind of horrible and impactful to kind of witness. And the other thing that these two women uh, with their performances imbue perfectly is this kind of sisterly attitude. Um, you really get the sense of even though one of them is an adopted you know, member of the family and one is kind of, you know, their more beloved child. The two of them, they're kind of playful bickering and banter back and forth. You do get this real sense of this sisterly bond between them. They bounce off of each other just perfectly and it only intensifies the opposition while also highlighting the the kind of similarities. And those similarities obviously being like, what am I trying to say here? It's that real, as it boils down to it, like religion is religion. It's not all that much different where your faith lies just as long as you have faith but at this time and in around that kind of the setting of this film it really is that shiny new kind of trinket that is christianity that they're latching onto um both of these characters are they're really bratty in their own kind of way uh and gary is this kind of downtrodden world traveled forgotten older sister and karen is the spoiled naive kind of ah shucks batting of the eyelashes younger child type um, while in Gary could kind of find this infuriating and, um, you know, it, it's actually coming from a genuine place within Karen. She's not acting like she's putting it on. Um, when confronted by the men in the woods that will eventually end up murdering her, she offers them bread and water. She has, she has no idea what's about to happen to her next. And it makes her inevitable fate that really tough to sit through. Again, any rape and murder scene is not a fun sit. Like, no one really seeks those out in films and really wants to dive in and watch those. But at the same time, the setup that Bergman is doing of these kind of two different characters and the innocence and sweetness and naivete of Karen just makes it all the more brutal. And I guess we should probably talk about that scene. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's fucking rough. Um, while also not being kind of overly explicit. Um, although apparently it caused like a huge stir back in 1960 when it was released, and I completely understand why. Um, and when I say not overly explicit, um, I'm kind of meaning that in the truest sense of the word. Uh, it's kind of not really shot in a natural, in a gratuitous way. It's, it's very matter of fact. Um, there's, it's, you know, natural lighting and just kind of, we're not, there's not multiple cuts. It just kind of almost lingers out in a single wide shot. And again, keeping it as a wide shot. And so it's, you know, this objective kind of event that we're kind of being forced to watch. Um, it, it's, it's, it really does just make it blunt and make you as the audience just forcibly be like this is what is happening to her we're not glorifying this we're not kind of you know shying away from it either we're just presenting you this is what is happening to her this is what happened to many people and this is this is it but he doesn't glorify the horrible act to kind of help elicit a response from the audience instead he's kind of just presenting to it to us in that subjective way and makes us feel that loss of innocence and that tragedy 
And I mean, the there is purpose to why Bergman is presenting it to us in this such a subjective kind of blunt kind of way, and it's so that we un- like a understand the horrible nature of what happened to Karen, but it also helps to get us on board for the revenge that Tor is going to enact. Um, having witnessed the the rape and the murder, we understand the rage that he feels and can understand the violence that he wants to enact onto the perpetrators. And that kind of that that understanding of that kind of torn in that kind of battle that inside Tor, the the kind of him brutally wanting to enact vengeance upon these men, it's really what gives way to the overall film uh, theme of the film, bring it all back again to faith. Tor and by proxy us, the audience, we we find ourselves in a situation where we're living our lives comfortably with this new world, with the Christian world, but we have. But we've had this old world that it's and its barbaric nature kind of thrust violently back into our lives, and it's essentially just torn him apart. And as a result, he finds himself kind of returning to that old system, an eye for an eye, and he goes and he pretty much just goes Old Testament on them rather than his uh, new beloved New Testament. Uh, this is where we're presented with uh, two of the most amazing scenes in any Bergman film, I feel. Uh, it's uh, that incredible fucking wide shot of Max von Sydow uh, tearing down the tree and then the uh, self-flagellation scene. Uh, the tree scene is fucking spectacular. Um, Sven, it's just Sven Nyquist doing what he does. And what's actually interesting is this was the first kind of collaboration between cinematographer Sven Nyquist and uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, apparently uh, by the time uh, Virgin Springs production began, Bergman's, uh, the relationship uh, Bergman had with his usual cinematographer, uh, Gunnar Fischer, had become a little bit strained uh, due to Bergman's uh, abrasiveness, it says. <laughs> uh when Fisher found another project to work on, uh, Bergman replaced him with Sven Nyquist, who became just his regular collaborator from then on. Um, and yeah, they are a perfect fucking match. Um, that that just bluntness of, of... And the tree scene is the great example of that, where it's this beautifully, perfectly framed wide shot, like almost an extreme wide shot, of this lone sapling tree in the middle of a hilly... of a Like of a hill in this field and he just the frustration that he feels absolutely having to tear it down just shows us the plain and simple the frustration that this man is feeling the futility of not being able to do anything to help his daughter and all he can do is just rock that tree out of just anger it's it's incredible just even thinking about it just kind of almost gives me goosebumps a little bit It, it really is just absolutely stunning and then they follow this up with uh with the flagellation scene where it's it's he stripped the branches from the tree that he's torn down and is just whipping himself um with with those kind of branches and the leaves um and you know he knows what he's going to do and is still attempting um at this kind of point to to remain in that Christ, uh, in the world of Christianity, and he's he's essentially atoning for the actions he's about to undertake. He's he's having these thoughts of violence, and he knows what is going to happen. So he's almost you know that flagellation of whipping himself in advance of what is about to happen, kind of trying in in vain to kind of get that forgiveness for what is about to happen. 
Um, and that scene, sh- it's shot from this low angle and it's in this dirty kind of shed room with the boiling water and it's just harsh shadows and bright lights and it's just the contrast again of that kind of dirty, grimier old world versus the kind of bright and shiny new world and the two of them clashing in this blunt and brutal kind of scene of this man just naked whipping himself violently with leaves as like an attempt it's this perfect blending of the two faiths it's absolutely jaw-dropping and then from that obviously we then get to witness Tor get his revenge um by killing the two men that uh, raped and murdered his daughter and uh, he's so sort of bound up in the violent act that he's doing that uh, the young child, I mean probably about 12 years old or something that was also part of you know that the, the third companion of those two men was witness to the act as well um, he just picks up that young boy and he throws him against a fucking wall um, and kills him as well and it's kind of only after that moment that Tor kind of come, snaps out of it and comes back to reality. And you can see how absolutely shaken he is by the actions that he's committed. Max von Sydow, man, like, incredible actor. Absolutely incredible. Uh, he f- kind of finds himself uh, kind of trying to process, and the way that he does it over it, like the look on his face, processing uh, what's just happened and, you know, using his faith, and he immediately immediately must atone for what's happened you know the the he's murdered a small child um then he and the family um obviously in a, to get a better understanding of a what had happened and then also reclaim the body they trek through the forest to to where the attack happened and to kind of collect karen's body and it's at that moment kind of he's just overcome with his faith and his grief all kind of combining into this one kind of catastrophic plea where he falls to his knees and just begs for forgiveness from from god and he vows uh that he will build a church in the very spot here to help make penance for 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 the for the revenge that he took and the the murders that he committed the sins um he's just a man that has just been absolutely torn apart um not just by the rape and murder of his own daughter but by his faith He's a man who is presented with the simple choice of his natural instincts, those of wanting justice and revenge for what's been done to his daughter and his new beliefs and his faith. And in the, and in, in the end, his faith wins with him lifting Karen's head. And, you know, that's the point. You know, like he's cradling his daughter's dead body. And that's when the titular virgin spring begins to flow uh, from where the body was. And this absolutely incredible shot of he lifts her head. And then from the ground, just what, this natural spring starts to flow. Um, it's, it's this tableau that Bergman create, creates in this scene. It's both kind of faith-affirming and like kind of morbidly somber, which is kind of, if I was to try and describe Bergman films, it would maybe be that, faith and life-affirming and morbidly somber. Um, with Tor and his family there, they, they kind of, they've embraced their faith and seemingly God is acknowledging their loss and his pledge by kind of allowing that babbling brook to kind of start emerging from where Karen lay. Um but at the same time this kind of beautiful moment of seemingly god acknowledging 
uh, Tor's plea for forgiveness and his kind of uh, repenting and, uh, you know, uh, vow to build the church there and the accepting of that. Um, Tor having been, you know, having been absolved of the guilt and responsibility by, well, not responsibility, being absolved of the actions and forgiven by God. At the same time, we, we can't forget the absolute horrible violence that, that that happened because he at the same time it's this he's holding the body of his raped and murdered daughter this raw humanistic violence that was enacted upon karen we can never forget it uh he again is and in that kind of final shot of this beautiful babbling brook and it's this sun beaming down onto this little meadow He's again presenting us very plainly with the duality of man right there, the the natural instincts and the modern faith. And that's what the film is doing. It's fucking amazing. Um, I've really just rambled nonstop for like the last 20 minutes or whatever on it. But it's it's a hard fucking film to to crack the nut of, I guess. And it is not an easy watch, but... If you give it the time and kind of settle into it and explore what Bergman's doing with that kind of duality of man, the relationship of the old faith and the new faith, forgiveness and vengeance, it's it's an amazing piece of filmmaking. And I absolutely adore it and think it is truly one of Bergman's bests. I mean, as, and on that note, I guess I should probably start wrapping it up because... I've just essentially read you guys a fucking essay <laughs> on uh, on my thoughts on The Virgin Spring. But, I mean, a few other little odds and ends about it, I guess, are um, the interesting thing that apparently a big influence on the film at the time uh, was Bergman was a huge uh, fan of Kurosawa, actually, and in particular uh, Rashomon. Um, and so that kind of... Uh, the Again, you can really see those influences, uh, in particular the wood, the scenes out in the woods and the exterior stuff at the farmhouse. It really gives you that rural Kurosawa feel. And I absolutely love that um, Bergman went on to say, uh, referred to the film as a wretched imitation of Kurosawa. Again, like he's self-flagellating himself, Bergman. He never understands or like never appreciates his own work. He always thinks he's kind of... You know, he's fucked it up once again, but it's absolutely amazing, I think. Um, And the other thing is worth noting is that this is uh, widely considered to be the kind of first of the uh, Rape Revenge films that are, I mean, the film, it's kind of remade as, and it was 100% the inspiration for, um, but it was uh, essentially remade by Wes Craven in 1972 as Last House on the Left. Um, kind of taking that idea of a woman being raped and murdered and then uh, the people going on revenge against the people that enacted the crime. Uh, It's really, it's, yeah, kind of an interesting history that you could take something that is so kind of rooted in faith and religion and then kind of subvert that and take the kind of initial text and subvert it and instead kind of spin and create almost a new entire genre of the horror rape revenge, the grindhouse dirty B-grade film from it. It's, It's interesting. I love the fact that you know, Wes Craven and Ang Lee and all these other filmmakers are able to kind of watch The Virgin Spring and get something completely different out of it or kind of twist what has kind of been presented to them and use it to influence and create stuff that would go on to like help kickstart and build their careers. Otherwise, I guess that'll probably start to wrap up this episode, yada yada, as I'd said. 
Um, I'll move into a little bit of trivia about the film. Uh, not a whole lot out there that I haven't kind of that is doesn't already kind of relate to um, you know the the last house on the left of it all and everything. Uh, but I will say that the film actually uh, was nominated for two Academy Awards in 1961, uh, Best Costume Design Black and White, and it won Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, it was also won two awards at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, the Fopresky Prize, as well as a Special Mention Award. And it also won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film in 1961. So yeah, quite a few people uh, agree it's it's pretty fucking good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the only other thing I would uh, recommend, uh, if anyone has the Criterion channel out there, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably have a subscription. Um, there's a really great in the adventures of movie, uh, movie going, um, there's a really great little thing of Pete Becker kind of interviewing, uh, Bill Hader about this film actually, and his thoughts on it. And if anybody has been watching, uh, Barry, uh, in particular seasons three and four, you can really pick up on some of the influence of Bergman on, uh, Bill Hader and his filmmaking style, uh, in those later seasons of that show. So I would recommend checking that thing out. Uh, otherwise, uh, good. I guess that'll wrap me up for another rambling episode looking at Ingmar Bergman's 1960 masterpiece, dare I say, uh, The Virgin Spring. By the way, I'm so happy over the, like, many years of now doing this podcast, because I remember back in the day when we first started and we didn't know what the fuck we were talking about and kind of used this as an excuse to kind of learn and understand film and kind of learn how to critique film, I guess. Uh, the a kind of complete lack of understanding about Bergman and just not getting it or engaging with it at all and to now kind of have come full circle and just, I, I love this film. Um, and again, you know, massive asterisks of it's not an easy watch, but I would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, so we'll talk about the Criterion Edition itself. It's still in print as a one-disc DVD and a one-disc Blu-ray, and it comes with an audio commentary from 2005 by uh, Ingmar Bergman scholar uh, Brigitta Steen. Interviews from 2005 with actors Gunnar Lindblom and Brigitta Peterson. Introduction by filmmaker Ang Lee from 2005. Audio recording of a 1975 American Film Institute seminar by Bergman. Alternate English dubbed soundtrack, as well as the usual booklet and essay that Criterion usually do. Um, I will be back in a fortnight's time. I promise this time. <laughs> I'll use this as an opportunity to apologize once again for the lateness of this episode. Um, as I'd said, um, starting, finishing up an old job, starting a new job, and new job kind of, uh, getting very hectic with, uh, the Cannes Film Festival and everything happening. So it was, it was kind of unavoidable trying to balance that work life and podcasting duties. So uh, you'll be happy to know that I've actually already banked the episode that will be coming out in a fortnight's time, looking at Orson Welles' Mr. Arkadin. And I'm actually planning in the next day or two to record the one after that because I'm going to be going away to the Sydney Film Festival uh, for a couple of days for work. So I'm just trying to get a whole bunch of stuff banked and ready so we can try and get back to our kind of regular release schedule for all of these. But uh, I thank you for your patience and I thank you for listening to my insane ramblings about faith and Christianity. Uh, hopefully I did an okay job if anybody out there is interested in any of that stuff. Uh, hopefully I didn't butcher it too much. 
Uh, but yes, thank you again for listening. Uh, as usual, I'll plug the Patreon. If you feel like uh, you, you like the show and you kind of want to help us out a little bit, head on over there. Once a month, uh, Lee and I put out some extra stuff with some special guests. Uh, we either do commentary episodes or bonus episodes on movies we call PMPs, uh, pretty much perfect movies, and a uh, little fun bonusy stuff. So I think we've just released our episode looking at a film I'm obsessed with, uh, Moneyball. But uh, yeah, head on over to that, uh, patreon.com slash the Criterion Quest. And as always, in the episode description, you've got links to our Instagram, uh, to mine and Lee's letterbox accounts, and all of the fun stuff there. But again, thank you all for listening uh, for this week's episode. I'm Chris, and I'll see you next time. Because I gotta have fun.